May I ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We come to the end of a short series that I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians 12, looking at what the Apostle Paul teaches about uh, the meaning of spiritual and how that's related to the body of Christ. If I can just recap, review, it would be, when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that is evidence of the Spirit's work to give new birth, to form the body of believers, and to fill it with the parts that God wants for the body. Right? So, so a person is uh, cut off from God, alienated because of the ignorance that is in them, the Scriptures say, uh, with no... Uh, not a participant in the promises of God. They hear the word of God. The spirit of God brings conviction so that they understand the truth about God, about themselves as sinners, about Christ as the only solution to mankind's problem with sin, and that the proper response to Christ is repentance and faith, the acknowledgement of our Sin and its demerit, that is, we are under the judgment of God, and that we cannot solve that problem ourselves, only Christ can. And so we confess Him as Lord, acknowledge that He uh, is the sinless Son of God who died as a substitute for sinners and rose from the dead and has been made both Lord and Christ and exalted the right hand of God the Father. And one day he is coming to judge those who are upon the earth. And, and the judgment will be severe against those who have rejected him. And he will rescue those who've trusted in him. I mean, that's the message they preach, the gospel. And when someone saw that and by the work of the Spirit opened their heart to that truth, they confessed Jesus as Lord. They were rightly related to God by the Spirit and passed from being a natural person lost in sin to being spiritual. That is, they possessed the Spirit of God. That's what happened in them as individuals, but also what happened to them is that they were taken from the world out of the world and brought into the body of Christ. They've been baptized by Christ with the Spirit and placed in the body. That's what 12.13 said when we looked at it. 12.12, I should say. Uh, actually, 12.13. And, and also, they were recipients of the Spirit, and when He came, He came bringing gifts that they might use to serve Him. Last week, we looked at the portion of the text which focuses on two basic principles. You need the body, and the body needs you. That's the whole point of the body analogy, that, that the parts, right, the parts need the body for life, and the body needs the parts. And both of those are true and essential to understanding it. We now come to the end of the chapter, and I'm going to uh, try and finish the exposition of it, and then I want to do some, some pulling together of it and, and application of it. So start in verse 27. Now you are Christ's body 
and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And, and I'll read the end of verse 31, but I think it really goes with chapter 13. And I show you still a more excellent way, and that's the, the way of love. Paul does again, he puts down the basic principle in verse 27, and it's not, uh, it's, it's not like a brand new expression, but I think what we have to do is make sure we slow down enough to get it, okay? The first part of verse 25, or 27, here's the principle, the congregation is the body, all right? And the reason I say that is because that you is a second person plural, right? And, and I've done this before, and we have to recognize in English, I can say you and be pointing to Jim Kratz, or I can say you and be talking to the entire side of the room. In English, we use the exact same word. There's no distinction between the two. In Old English, there was. It would have been you and ye, right? In Greek, there's two forms of the same word that indicates the second person singular and the second person plural. This is the second person plural. He's saying to the whole congregation, you are the body, right? And, and, and that's important because it's intended to emphasize the fact that they are the body, but notice the language, it's not just you're the body, your Christ's body, right? And, and he communicates it in a, in a way that indicates not just the plural nature of it, but the possessive nature. This is the body that belongs to Christ. It's his body. It's not, it's not in this sense, we wouldn't say our body. It's Christ's body, right? His he is the one who owns this body because he has bought it with a price, chapter 6 would say. He purchased it. In fact, uh, Paul is very clear about that in Acts 28 to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Right? He says, take heed to yourselves over all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Right, The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Right, so Paul makes it clear why this flock, why this body is so important. It's because Christ purchased it with his own blood. Right, the church is not just a human organization. It's not a, just a cluster of people who have common uh, affinities or common goals. It's actually a collection of people who have identified themselves as Believers in Jesus Christ, that is, they have been bought at the cost of the blood of Christ. And it's Christ's body, right? And that, that's important 
because that affects the way you think about it. But look at the second part of the verse, right? You all together are Christ's body, first part, second part, and believers belong to it, right? Individually members of it. You are individually members of it. So, so there's, there is, uh, there's this important balancing of the collective and the individual. All right, the, the congregation and the individual believer. They're, they're, neither one gets obliterated by the other one. Right? The congregation is Christ. Individual believers belong to it. Right? And, and that's, the, that's the balancing act that we have to have all the way through this passage. And that's why he talks about one body, many members. Many members, yet one body. It's because it's Christ's body and every individual believer belongs to it, right? You're a member of it. And, and so when we think about ourselves, right? When we, when we have a sense of who we are, a very important part of that should be, I am a member of the body of Christ. Right? I am a part of that group of people which Christ shed his blood for and purchased. And I have been incorporated into the body of Christ and, and it's a part of who I am. Right? It's not just an incidental kind of thing. Right? It's, it's a, a, a central part of who you are. If you know Christ, you're a part of his body. You are a member of who belongs to it. Then in verses 28 through 30, he starts to talk again about the the body in a way that sort of picks up some earlier things, but also sort of uh, adds a couple other things into them in unique ways. And I think he's trying to tag the problems that are there. And so let me just, I'm trying to state them pretty quickly, but the first thing would be again, that the shape of the body is by God's design. First part of verse 28. God has appointed in the church. Right? So, so what gifts, what blessings are in the church are there by divine appointment? God has done so. And, and also, um, if I could, if I could, uh, without getting too complicated on this, because this is a part of when we wrestle with spiritual gifts, right? Uh, let's, let's say inside the, you know, the, the rectangle of this pulpit, all right? This is the church. What you have as gifts are given to you by God. Spiritual gifts are the ones given to you in the church, right? You, you may have other gifts, I mean, uh, let's say, you know, let's pick, uh, you know, let's pick the greatest hockey player ever, Gordie Howe, all right? Um, he was a gifted athlete. Do you know where those gifts came from? God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? 
right? That came from God. It came providentially from God. Right? It was, it was a gift from God in his providence that gave him the abilities by which he might succeed in, in that endeavor. But it was not a spiritual gift. I mean, I love hockey, but it's really not a spiritual gift. All right. And, and there's a difference there. And sometimes we wrestle with, well, what's a natural gift? What's a spiritual gift? And, and at least one way to, to, to distinguish the two is what he says in verse 28, in the church. Right? God has appointed in the church. So there's something unique and special attached to the ministry of the Spirit, which is for the common good, for the building up of the body, the edification of believers. Right? The, I think you could say some gifts within the church for the gathering in of lost. Because in chapter 4, verse 11 of Ephesians, it talks about the gift of evangelism. Right? So, so God gives to the church what it needs to be healthy to advance the mission of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that that's all that we ever think about, because obviously in a room like this, we have to exercise responsibility and use abilities outside of the church. That doesn't, that's a part of our stewardship before God as one of his creation, right? We, we, we don't try to put these against each other in that way, but we do recognize the difference. Because if we think, Right. Well, I have this ability, so I'm going to do that in the church. And we actually sort of seamlessly move without recognizing that something different is happening here. That is actually past my natural abilities. Because the spiritual gifts affect common good. That is, there's something that happens to other believers when this happens. And that can't happen just by natural means. There must be some work of the Spirit that attends it. There must be some dependence on the Spirit. Right? I mean, uh, I think, and I have, I mean, I've given talks and taught and do all kinds of stuff. I think I could put together a decent speech if someone hey, give a speech on XYZ and show up at the, you know, the, uh, the meeting of the Royal Order of Water Buffaloes and tell them something, right? I mean, I could do that. I mean, I speak for a living. I was speaking before I was a pastor, right? I mean, I, I could do that. I would not do that expecting that to necessarily be the dynamic that operates here where it's, yes, I'm working and trying to craft and not neglect my gift and stir it up, but, but, and this is just an illustration, but it's like Elijah. Like I, I got the offering, but unless there's fire from heaven, it's not going to go off. Right? Unless God does something it's not going to be what needs to happen, right? Because it is not just dependent on my abilities. 
It's not going to be able to be fulfilled by just my abilities. It's going to require the attending work of the Spirit to carry out the purpose that God has. And what's true about me standing here doing this is true about you teaching a Sunday school class or helping a group of children or working with a small group of teenagers or or speaking a word of encouragement to a brother and sister in Christ to see them strengthened in the Lord, right? Because that word is supposed to minister grace according to the need of the moment. And your words all by themselves don't have the capacity for that. It must be enabled and helped by God. That's why it must be saturated in a kind of dependence on God that expresses itself prior to and in the midst of. Lord, help this be effective for the spiritual good of this person. Help me to do it. If I take the languages of 1 Peter chapter 4, if I'm speaking, I'm supposed to do it as the very utterances of God. If I'm serving, I'm supposed to do it in the strength that God supplies. Lord, help me do this in your power, not just mine. Right? That's, that's, this is so, so that God is at work in the church. It is his plan, his design to give to the body what it needs so that it can experience the life of God in the soul of the church. He's given to each one for the common good. That design, look at the second part of verse 28, exhibits incredible diversity. And, and Paul does this by the way he sort of, hear this the right way, right? He, he, he sort of throws together a list. And, and when I say that, I've said already when we looked at a list earlier in the chapter that as you look at the list of gifts and these kinds of things, they're, they're never the same. Right? They're, so they're, they're what we would call sort of ad hoc. He's, he's just addressing the thing according to the, cert, the particular situation. He's not writing an, an exhaustive encyclopedia of gifts. And, and in this particular case, it's sort of an interesting transition. He mentions three groups of people, apostles, prophets, and teachers. And then he jumps to miracles and gifts of healings and helps and administration. So he goes from things that require supernatural power in what we tend to call miraculous ways, right? Miracles and healings to then deeds of service, helps and administrations. The kind of stuff that you wouldn't think requires some charismatic kind of gifting. It's these are deeds of service. And then he jumps to the one that's probably the significant problem there, the issue of tongues. All right? So if you're trying to look at this list and go, what is Paul doing here? You wouldn't come to the conclusion that he has put together a logically tight list. Because he goes from people to 
power demonstrations to, and I'm going to put it in this, but sort of mundane efforts to help people, back to revelatory. Because all he's trying to do, I believe, is show you that the diversity that's in the body is from God. Right? It, it's, there is an order. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. But then all of a sudden the order stops. And he just starts to talk about things that are going on in the church because he wants them to see that all of this is from God. Just like earlier in the chapter, he said, he said, gifts and ministries and effects. Right? We need to get on his terms instead of ours. Ours are, give us a list, show us exactly how the parts of that list all fit in, make it like an outline. Here's the first cluster, second cluster, third cluster. Here's what's subordinated to this. And that's not what he's doing here. He's trying to make one big point. All of this is because it's God's plan. So the diversity among you is God's plan. And in fact, verses 29 and 30, the distribution of it is intended to show that. And he just piles up the questions. When I read them out loud, it seems so repetitive, right? Because the answer is no all along. All are not apostles, are they? Well, no. All are not prophets, are they? Well, no. All are not teachers, are they? Well, no. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No, Paul, we get it. Right? But he keeps going. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? See the difference there? He tosses in interpret when he didn't list that up above. All he did was talk about tongues, not interpretation. So he's just trying to make the point rhetorically like you and I tend to do. If we're in a conversation with somebody and somebody's making some bad points and we just start going, well, okay, hey, what about this and this and this and this and this? We're piling it up to make the point. And that's what Paul's doing. That the differences in the church distributed out at God's decision-making are precisely because that's the way God wants the church to be. Because it's Christ's body. And every one of those are members of it. Right? They exist for the body. God's put them there for that reason. Now, I'm going I'm to just like do a quick side argument because of the nature of some of these things. Uh, look at verse 28. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And then let me ask you to jump over to Ephesians chapter 4. Because I think, I don't, I really don't want to, I mean, it would be like a whole nother series on the, the issue of whether miraculous sign gifts are still present. But, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to just try and drop the hammer fast, okay? Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Because you'll see these three gifts listed again in, in the statement about Christ ascends, gifts are given, then verse 11 of chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And let me just take the evangelist one. That's simply a gospel preacher. It's really, you shouldn't, I mean, I don't think it would necessarily exclude an itinerant preacher preaching the gospel. 
It probably is much larger than that. It's probably like church planters and missionaries as well. They're taking the gospel, like Philip is the only one called that in the Bible. And he's in a certain region preaching the gospel after he'd been in Samaria. Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and it's here. And there's all the times it's mentioned. All right, so, so it's simply the word means a good news speaker. And, and there are some that God gifts to be, I think, that kind of pioneering proclaimer of the gospel for the advance of the mission of Jesus Christ. All right. The ones that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, though, are apostles, prophets, and teachers, pastors and teachers, probably being pastors, a subset of the larger group of teachers. Right? So teachers and pastors are a subset of it. Like when Jesus talks about tax collectors and sinners, it didn't mean they're two separate groups. Tax collector is a subset of sinners, right? And I think that's the way that, that, that you'd be thinking. Pastor teachers or pastors who are, who are a subset of those who are gifted teachers. The issue really is the apostles and prophets. And here's what I want us to look at and see. All right, go back over to chapter 2 and verse 20. Because notice what Paul already says in the book about apostles and prophets. He's talking about the church in, in the passage coming up. It right? So 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of, of the saints and are of God's household, which is, is the church. And then notice, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So here Paul says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation. Now, here's the thing that's key is, notice the order, it's apostles and prophets. These are New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. It's the apostles and prophets who are the vehicle of God's divine revelation at the foundation of the church. And the reason I say that is go keep going down in chapter 3, and look at beginning verse 4. By referring to this, that is the revelation of the mystery, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in or by the Spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so, so look what he says in verse 5, and it's important to understand this. There is a mystery of Christ which wasn't known in other generations, right? First part of verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. So there's something... This mystery of Christ, which was not made known in other generations, but, look at the language, but now, right, but now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So the prophets can't be the Old Testament prophets, because in previous generations they didn't understand this mystery of Christ, 
It's now been revealed to the apostles and prophets. So that's New Testament prophets. It's people speaking the message of God revealed to them before the scriptures were given. That's why it's called the foundation. Right? The apostles and prophets were the foundation of the New Testament era. And so they were gifts given to the church for that purpose. And that's what Paul's saying. And that foundation was laid. And, and that foundation isn't still coming because we have the faith, Jude would say, that was once for all delivered to the saints. The, the foundation's laid. It's been given to us. We have all of the revelation that we need to understand the will of God for the church. The apostles and prophets were the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. This was the revelation of the mystery in Christ that Jew and Gentile would be one body, foundation laid. That's why they were called, these miracles were called the signs of an apostle. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, that God was confirming their testimony, right? As they were preaching this gospel, he was confirming their testimony through signs and wonders because that was the foundation, and that's why it was laid out that way. So here's the thing I'd say about 1 Corinthians 12. It's still during that foundational era. era. Who's writing to the Apostle Paul? Oops. Gave away the answer. Who's writing to the Corinthians? The Apostle Paul. All right, some of you still didn't get it, all right? So, so here's the deal. Paul the Apostle is writing. So you're still in the foundational area. And in that foundation era, these miraculous signs were there to confirm the message of the Apostles and the Prophets. But once the foundation was laid it seems clear from the New Testament that there was, it seemed to be, I would say, a gradual decreasing of those things. I mean, here's Paul, the guy who healed so many people, telling Timothy to take some medicine. Here's Paul, while he's in a Roman prison, talking about Epaphroditus being sick unto death, and Paul is thankful that God raises him up and has mercy on him. So Paul clearly wasn't going to go, hey, Epaphroditus, get better. Right? As the foundation was put in place, the miraculous signs that attended and accompanied it began to, to recede. And it's clear from church history that, that that was the pattern that goes alongside of what the New Testament says about it. So we shouldn't read 1 Corinthians 12 and go, well, he gave those kinds of gifts then. We should be expecting those same kinds of gifts now. What I would say is that would be missing the point of what Paul's saying. The pro a part of the problem with Corinth was they had an obsessive interest in the most visible, demonstrably powerful signs. And that was leading to the divisions in the church. And Paul weaves into every discussion of it. You know, yeah, there might be a miracle of healings, but there's also like a 
a ministry of helps. Right? There might be some powerful display, but there's also just like deeds of service. Because the gravity tends to be like, wow, look, look at that. Whoa. And, and that seems to be the gravity that was drawing them. And so Paul's trying to pull them back together. Right? This is God's design. The diversity is God's uh, purpose in it. And the distribution of those are at God's disposal, so to speak, right? Not everyone's an apostle. Not everyone's a prophet. Not everyone's a teacher. Not everyone has these gifts. And it's not supposed to be that everybody has them. And, and that's why you don't go, hand says, well, I'm not a foot, therefore I'm not a part of the body. Or the eye said, doesn't say to the ear, I have no need of you. Everything is needed that God gives to the church and it should be appreciated in that way and pursue, pursue the greater gifts, which he will unpack later as being those which bring edification to the church, right? That build up because that's the goal that God has for the body. All right, so let me pull it all together in terms of the series just to sort of challenge us, right? We, uh, I'd say based on this chapter, we need to guard, we must guard the spiritual nature of the church, right? The church is a, an assembly, a body of people who give a credible confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. We cannot ever in our mind let the church just drop to the level of friendship or kinship ties or common interests, right? Those would put it down to social gatherings. It's the place where I hang out with my friends, or it's the place I grew up around and my family's all there, or, hey, we all have this interest that we have together. If that's what it is, then we're missing what the church is supposed to be. Our primary identity is those who have called upon the name of the Lord. That's where he starts all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 2. And that's what he highlights in 1 Corinthians 12. That is the thing that ties us together. We have confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord. And that's our unity. That's the bond that we have. Because we have, uh, we have wrapped up in that the mutual presence of the Spirit, right? If you've been born again, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he dwells in every other member of this assembly who has been born again. And not only that, we have all been in a, in a work of the Spirit placed into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that we're his body, and he's the head over that body. And the Spirit, when he came into our lives, brought with him the gifts that we need so that we might grow as a body of believers. We have been enriched with those. So the church must always be fundamentally marked off by that confession and functionally controlled by its sense of being the body of Christ, right? 
at our very essence, we are Christ. And in the outworking of that essence, we're his body. We're supposed to be ministering to one another in that way. As I said last week and at the beginning, you need the body, the body needs you, and all the parts of the body are needed. His plan and purpose is for the unity and mutual care of the body. So we need to genuinely appreciate that, right? Genuinely appreciate it. And that means it's not just lip service, but it is a deeply held value, right? There are, there are things in your life that matter to you so much they control the way you think and act. This truth should be like that, right? That, that the body of Christ is a spiritual entity owned by the Lord, empowered by the Spirit, and it is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, I've said this before, and you know, I, I really believe, every time I hear about a church that's blowing up, I think to myself, what, what are those people thinking? I mean, you go back nine chapters and Paul is saying that, that you are, to the same Corinthian people, you, second person plural, you are God's temple because the Spirit dwells among you. That's what he's unpacking in chapter 12. And he says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. That's how important it is to God. I mean, he said, this is my dwelling place. This is where I live. You better recognize that. right? And we're just so far from that in our culture. I mean, we just are so far from thinking... To turn and attack the church is to attack Jesus. Right? To, 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 to spread disunity or to slander Christ's bride is to go against Jesus. Right? I mean, that's just, it's mind-boggling to me. And it's not just people in churches. I mean, I've watched pastors, and, I, and I've said point blank to them. I mean, I, I've said, I, mean, I don't know how many times I've said it, but when they're having problems, right, I've said, you better make sure this is about the truth, right? Because if it's not about the truth of God, then you causing a fight there is, is bad news. And if it's about the truth and you're going to step into this fight, you better stay there for the sake of God's people that stand with you. Because you could cause a brouhaha and send out your resume and take off. And they just have had a war with people that they've known all their lives, that they've loved and friends and family, and you fracture it and then you bail on them. Do not do that. I mean, that's, I've had that point blank conversation with people because the church matters more than any pastor. The church matters more than anybody. It is the church that matters. 
It's the body of Christ. It's the temple of God. We should revere and love it, treasure it and embrace it because it's what Christ shed his blood for. It's what the Father's plan was designed to accomplish. And so we should have a genuine appreciation for it and act on that appreciation by embracing it. It ought to be, it ought to be the very fabric of our hearts in that regard. And that means we should actively pursue unity and mutual care. We should always be thinking us and we, not me and I. Right? We're a body. So it should be us and we, not me and I. Right? You've heard me say this. I, I talk to pastors and they'll talk about my church and my deacons and my stuff and, and I'll... I, I always try to be gracious, uh, but lots of times my thoughts aren't gracious. I'll try to be gracious with my words. But it's no man's church. This is not my church any more than it's your church. It's our church. This is not Dave Dorn's church. It wasn't William R. Rice's church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's his. He owns it. And we need to realize that. It's, it's ours in the sense that we have been joined to it, so we can joyfully call it ours. It's, it's really never ours in the sense of my and I. It's us and we. We are joined to each other we are part of this body. And that means we should see what is going on and sympathize and seek to meet needs. And, and part of the heart that's coming from this is because I think the danger, and I alluded to some of this last, last week, is there, there are uh, natural tendencies that could move us away from being what God wants us to be. Right? I mean, part of it would be, say, the size of us. And, and I, I, don't think, I don't think the answer is to get down to, like, you know, we four no more. Because usually when the heart goes that way, it doesn't care about the other three anyway. Right? I think the issue is, is that it's, it's generally true that when there are a lot of people everybody can assume somebody else is doing something. Right? You remember that old, you know, little, little ditty about when it's everyone's job, it's no one's job? And that's what can happen in congregations. Right? It can be like, okay, something's going on, and I think there's a problem over there, but surely someone else is going to see it. Someone else will think about it. And, and because we do that, we tend to back away instead of moving toward. We, we don't uh, pay attention as much as we should because the more people are around, the more likely it is for us to not pay attention. I mean, that happens, that happens in society, right? I mean, uh, 
horrible things happen while all kinds of people are just walking past and not even paying attention to it because the crowd actually sort of blinds them to it. They, they would think that if there's something wrong, somebody would be doing something, so it must not be as bad as I think it is. And, and that can happen in the church. And then after the problem comes up, we start to go, well, maybe I should have done something. And, and we've got to guard ourselves against that kind of hesitation that can fall into neglect. Part of why I've preached this series is because I want to eliminate any sense of ambiguity or uncertainty. Do you know if a part of the body is hurting, you never, ask, you never have to ask the question, should I do something about it? Right? That's, that's, that's what Paul's saying. If a part of the body is hurting, never in our minds should be the question, well, I wonder if I should do something. The answer is, yes, you should. Right? Because if you saw a part of the body has a need, you are to respond to it. You're to move toward them in care and concern. If you pause to think, I wonder if I should do something, you have to recognize that there's probably a lot of people all sort of frozen in inactivity, wondering the same thing, and hoping somebody will say yes in their own heart, when the answer from God is, you saw it. Move toward it. Right? It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It can't be everyone's or it becomes no one. It's all of ours. And we've got to see that that's what Paul would say about the body. We need to see it. We need to recognize it. All right? And, and, and so when we think about these kinds of things, we, we need to feel the weight of that in a righteous way. I'm not in any way trying to make us feel the weight of it in a depressing guilt way. I'm trying to liberate us, right? We have biblical permission. We have biblical responsibility. We have biblical equipping Right, So I don't have to come up to a problem and go, well, is that my problem? Um, am I supposed to do something? Um, who's going to do something until it's too late to do anything? Right? I mean, it, it, it'd be like a bunch of people at a pool party and someone's drowning over in the pool and we're all busy talking with each other so much we don't even know it. And about the fourth dunk, we start to go, I wonder if I should do something. Well, if, if they were really drowning, somebody would be doing something. So they must not be really drowning. They're, they're playing around. Right? That's what can happen. Well, if there really was a problem, someone would be doing something. So there must not be a problem. So it's not my problem. 
And what I'm saying is we've got to see the call of Scripture to care for the body in such a way that we guard against the possibility of neglect that happens, uh, it happens unintentionally. Right? That's the thing. Because I'm not actually saying, well, you neglected so-and-so. I'm saying we can do it by accident if we're not attentive. Right? We can do it unintentionally, and, and the, the net result is we have damaged ourselves. We've hurt the body. We've not moved toward it. Right? So we need to think that way. I mean, as a basic principle or truth, here's the tension, right? People should help people in need. I mean, we agree with that. People should help people that are in need, especially when those people are dependent on you. I mean, if, 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 if I found out my sons had a need, I would be moving toward it. Right? I mean, I, I found myself at times in very odd situations because deeply woven into my heart, now called chauvinism, is I feel like women should be protected from, from people that threaten their lives. Right? So, I mean, I, I've, I've stopped in a McDonald's parking lot where I'm watching a man threaten a woman, gotten out of my car and walked over and said, hey, is anything going on? Right? Because... I would look at that and say, that's a person in need, and they would be dependent because she's not going to take that guy down. Right? Yesterday, I was actually playing golf, and a fire broke out. I mean, you could see the smoke across the street, and immediately we're all looking like, what do we do? And someone said, well, should we call? I said, yeah, we should call. I didn't have my phone. Like, somebody needs to call because if we all assume that somebody else is going to call, that house is going to burn to the ground before anybody does anything. Right? We all see when people have a need and we have a sense that like we're supposed to be a part of the solution, we move. It's when we don't know if we should or we're maybe not sure what to do. Uh, you know, maybe it would have been better to call the police than get out of my car at McDonald's. Right? When I walked up to the guy, I started thinking that, honestly, because... He was a pretty big dude, and I was thinking, I better act fast. So I said, hey, I'm just, I'm a pastor, <laughs> right? And I want to know if there's any way I can help, and it calmed things down quickly, all right? There have been other times when I was uh, putting my gloves on, thinking I might have to do something else, right? But, but that's the way it should be, right? Should it be any less inside the spiritual family, which we call Intercity Baptist Church? Should, should we be thinking, I hope somebody else calls 911. I hope somebody else steps into the gap there. I hope something happens. I think all of us know in our hearts that the answer to that is, if we see it, we're supposed to move toward it, right? And it may be, it may be, because I'm trying to paint a visual picture, right? I stopped the car and got out. One time I, I got out of the car and I said to Claudia, 
hop into the driver's seat because I had two little kids in the back seat. And if it got bad, I wanted her to drive off. Right? So there's multiple ways, multiple ways that we could answer the problem. You, know, you could pick up the phone. You could step in and do it. There's all, I'm not saying what you should do is what I did. I'm saying you got to do something. Right? you got to do something. You can't watch the train wreck and then go, why didn't you do something? God wants us to take it to heart, to see that that body, that's my foot that's about to get chopped off. That's my eye that's about to get poked out. This is my body. I'm a part of the body of Christ. It's ours. So, so, So let's think about that. I don't know what that means for you. In abstract, here's what I know. The minute you start to realize that somebody who used to sit alongside of you, you haven't seen them for a while. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to go, boy, I sure hope somebody who gets paid around here figures out they're gone. Or are you going to pick up the phone and say, hey, man, I missed you. Can we get together? Right? When you, when you pick up vibes that some couple is struggling in their marriage, what are you going to do about it? Surely you're going to do something. You're not going to go, well, that's somebody else's problem. Right? And I can, I can keep passing out the list of things. I'm just saying, here's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be his hands and feet. He wants us to be his eyes and ears. He wants us to love the body like he does. He wants us, every one of us, to embrace the unity and mutual care that God desires the body to have. And if we want to just show up to church, hear a good message, sing a few songs we like, have something for our kids to do, then we are woefully, woefully out of step with what Jesus wants his church to be. And we need to bend our heart and will to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have loved us and given us this great privilege and that we have all benefited from it. I am so thankful that I can think of specific people over the course of my life who reached out when they saw things that concerned them and spoke truth to me. And people who have expressed love and care, people who have brought encouragement, people who have demonstrated your love in tangible ways toward me, toward my family, 
toward many others that I know. And yet, Lord, in the midst of all of that, we, we've, we've not. There are times when words that should have been spoken weren't, when attention that should have been given wasn't, when burdens that should have been carried were let, left sitting on the shoulders of those who were bearing them. And Lord, we want, I believe it's our heart as a family of believers, we want to reflect your love better. We want to be more like Christ, love more like Christ. And so help us to grow. I pray, Lord, that this will not be heard as a finger-pointing sermon, but as a liberating one. That never, never should any member of the body feel as if they have restraints on them about showing care and concern. That we would all have our eyes open so that we consider one another how we can provoke to love and good works. That we will do so even more as we see the day approaching. So Lord, please use, uh, use this text and and I, I pray use the expression of my concern to shape and mold us so that we might be more faithful and fruitful for our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.